that psalm uh, Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 22, says that when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, he was speaking of Christ, that God said to Christ, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. I think that's helpful for us to keep in mind as we come to Psalm 20, that uh, David was aware of the greater king who would come from his line, and he did, in fact, write and pray concerning him, even concerning him um, explicitly, directly. So we have it in Psalm 20, where David prays concerning Christ. Read with me Psalm 20 on, I believe it's page 539 in the Pew Bibles. Superscription says that it's a psalm of David, that this psalm of David was committed to the choir master. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Congregation, a psalm like this that says, may God give you the desires of your heart and fulfill all your plans is certainly possible to misunderstand or misapply, rushing past the the context of of this psalm to to place it on a coffee mug or, or a nice calendar without understanding what it is that's actually being said or who this is being said to. If one a church uh, painting this verse, verse four on a, a wall of, of uh, a wall of Bible promises, as if verse four is is promising us that whatever we want and whatever we plan, God will give us. But before you get any ideas about customizing a new coffee mug or making some new wall art, it's it's good to understand what's going on in this psalm. Is David here talking to me, saying that God will give me the desires of my heart, or does he have someone else in mind? You can probably tell where I'm going with this. I believe he does. And I believe that someone is the king who would come from his line, the same one we sang of from Psalm 2. That in this psalm, David prays for Christ. 
As the old Free Church of Scotland pastor Andrew Bonar said, it is a psalm differing in its aspects from almost any other psalm, for it presents to us Messiah prayed for and Messiah prayed to by his waiting people. I'm here, David the King leads God's Old Testament waiting saints to pray for the true king. I'm going to show you that by answering first the question, for whom is David praying in Psalm 20? And for what is David praying in Psalm 20? Before we think about how we should pray Psalm 20. There is a better way than, than inserting ourselves into it as if it's first and foremost about us. And yet, as we'll see, because we're united to the one for whom David prays, it does have everything to do with us. Let's look at it together. First, for whom does David pray? And Calvin said, the object which David had expressly in view was to exhort the people of God to cherish such a holy care for the kingdom of Christ that would stir them up to continual prayer in its behalf. He said, David is here teaching us to pray for Christ and for his kingdom. Spurgeon said, it needs but a moment's reflection to perceive that this hymn of prayer is prophetic of our Lord Jesus and is the cry of the ancient church on his behalf as she sees him in vision, enduring a great fight of afflictions for her. Or the ancient church father Eusebius said, this entire psalm voices a prayer as spoken by holy people to the person of Christ. Now why would Eusebius and Augustine and Calvin and Spurgeon and Bonar say that this psalm is about Christ? Not just typologically, as if David is just pointing toward him in some vague sense, but that David is actually interceding here on behalf of the promised Messiah. What would lead them to say that? I'll show you several reasons why we should take this psalm as the waiting people of God of the Old Testament praying under David their head for his promised son. And first notice what it says in verse 1. Where it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Remember, David is the one who's named in the superscription of this psalm as the author. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to be speaking of himself, but he's speaking here of of another king. This individual who is referred to as, as the singular you or your some 11 times in these first five verses. David is not talking about himself, but is talking about the king, verse 9, and yet a king other than him. It's like we just sang in Psalm 110. I mentioned that um, Jesus in Matthew 22 says David there called him Lord. Uh, Here, David calls him king. He's the one for whom David prays. He's the one to whom David submits as king and in whom David and the people place their trust. I also say this because in verse 2, they ask God to send him help from his sanctuary or temple in Zion. But as of David's day, that temple is not yet there. David knew that that it would be. God tells him that in 2 Samuel 24. But as of David's day, there is no temple in Zion. 
And so we're not to understand this as the people praying for David to be saved, but as David leading them to pray for the future king to be saved as God sends him help from his sanctuary and gives him support from Zion. This is talking about a king who would come after David, who is identified in verse 6, perhaps you notice this, as God's anointed. Or in the Hebrew, that word is Messiah. Just a very important word. I think it's the key to this whole psalm. This is a word that's come up just twice so far in the whole Psalter. Uh, psalm 2, verse 2, where David says that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. And then that messianic psalm we looked at two weeks ago, Psalm 18, where David says in the last verse, great salvation God brings to his king, showing steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his singular offspring forever. So twice this word has come up in messianic contexts, pointing to Christ. It will come up twice more in Psalm 89, that a Davidic covenant messianic psalm we heard in our call to worship it will come up another two times in Psalm 132. Both of these psalms, messianic psalms in the narrowest sense, speaking of the coming of God's promised king from David's line. And so when we see that word here, it should inform the way that we read this psalm. It's about a future king who is not David, who is called God's Messiah who once again David refers to in verse 6 in a way that clearly distinguishes him from David himself, saying God will answer him from his holy heaven. He's speaking in the third person, as in someone other than David, who is not praying for God to grant him victory, but for God to grant victory to the promised one who would come from his line. By the way, even if, if this psalm were initially referring to David... We know from the superscription that it's committed to the choir master. It's it's taken up in the songs of Zion for use in in public worship so that even after David, God's people continue to sing it. And when they do, they're not singing it with reference to David, but to his son. As Delroth Davis says, not to historical David, but dynastic David. Or when they sing it in exile and there is no king on the throne, they are singing it with reference not to David, but with reference to the promised one for whom they long. The anointed Messiah of verse 6. I believe this this messianic understanding of the psalm accounts for its placement in, in this section of the Psalter in Psalms 15 through 24, where in response to that cry of 14.7, who from Zion will bring salvation, we're introduced to a perfectly righteous man in Psalm 15 who will rise from the dead in 16 and 17, is a new Joshua and new Moses in Psalm 18, delights in God's perfect law like the Deuteronomy 17 king in Psalm 19, will be that king in Psalm 21 who is given a crown of glory and length of days forever who though he suffers in Psalm 22 and says my God my God why have you forsaken me will be raised up to dwell in the house of the Lord forever Psalm 23 anointed in the presence of his enemies as the king of glory who alone may enter God's presence Theologians recognize Psalms 15 through 24 as a a sort of sub-collection in book one of, of the Psalms, right in the middle of it. 
that are even organized according to, to uh, what theologians call a, a chiasm, this, this sort of, of parallel pattern beginning and ending in 15 and 24 with the righteous king entering God's presence on the basis of his perfect righteousness. Who though rejected by men in Psalms 3 through 14 is now accepted by God. Remember, that's the theme that Psalm 2 established that the nations would rage and the peoples would plot in vain against the Lord's anointed. We, we saw that in Psalms 3 through 14, but now are seeing the Lord answer him from his holy hill. The very thing we sang of already this morning from Psalm 2, which, by the way, gives precedent for understanding David in Psalm 20 to be uh, praying into the future with regard to his coming son, this, this coming king, because that's the very thing we see in Psalm 2 the very entryway into the Psalter. Or it's the very thing we see in Psalm 16, where David's confidence in the face of death is that God will not let his Holy One, his Covenant One, his Messiah, see decay. In both Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, David prays as a prophet for the coming kingdom of his son. That's the same thing he's doing in Psalm 20 which in fact has a number of, of connections, a number of, of parallels in, in terms of the language and themes with, with Psalm 2 that we don't have time to get into, but those connections signal that Psalm 2 is, is providing the framework through which we are to read and understand this psalm. It's about the victory of that same anointed king there prophesied. There's not just connections with Psalm 2, but other nearby psalms like Psalm 18 which we saw two weeks ago, is is a messianic psalm. It's a royal psalm about the kingdom of Messiah. And it's interesting that the vocabulary of Psalm 20 um, echoes Psalm 18 in at least six different places, which is significant because Psalm 18 tells us that it's pointing to the Messiah. In other words, Psalm 18 pictures the victory that will come from great David's greater son, and now Psalm 20 shows the people praying for it, which is then followed up in Psalm 21 by a sure sign that the subject of Psalm 20 is the Messiah when it says that this king that God will save will live forever. Psalm 21 is, is carrying on the same thought of Psalm 20 and makes clear that this is God's forever king. The one promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 would have an eternal kingdom. Psalm 20 is a messianic psalm in the most narrow sense, focusing our vision on Christ. As James Johnston said, this psalm was given to the choir master to teach the people to hope in the Messiah. The heart of Psalm 20 is the confidence that God will save his anointed and give him victory. David is writing about Christ. Which becomes even clearer as we consider next what David prays for about Christ. As we look at these specific blessings invoked for God to pour out on his king, we see how beautifully this psalm is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So look at me now at what David prays for. Where he's asking the Lord to answer the king in his day of trouble, day of affliction. Some translations have it. It sounds like this king is, is perhaps preparing for a battle. 
And David asked that God would be pleased with his sacrifice, that God would answer his petitions, and that God would grant him victory on this day of battle, this this day of, of trouble or distress. Understood in reference to Christ, this this day of of affliction, this day of trouble is the day of his suffering. David is leading the people already here 1,000 years before the coming of Christ to see that this Messiah will suffer. To see that he will have a day of trouble where he needs to be protected. And when that day comes, he will be a man of prayer who turns to God. Is that not what's implied by the people saying, may the Lord answer you? That, that in his day of trouble, he will turn to God. The church of the Old Testament is here praying that God will answer his requests. Even though he would be alone in his suffering hour, Peter, James, and John would fall asleep He is here prayed for by his waiting saints. Bonar said this psalm is the prayer that the church might be supposed to have offered up had all the redeemed stood by the cross or in Gethsemane in full consciousness of what was there happening. Messiah, in reading these words, would know that he had elsewhere the sympathy he longed for when he said to his disciples, wait here And watch with me. He would have been strengthened by reading this psalm. David prophesied of the day of Messiah's trouble, how he would turn to God in the midst of it, and how on that day he would offer, verse 3, a sacrifice. Now likely the way the people would have, would have understood this was after the pattern of, of kings offering a sacrifice to God before a great battle to petition him for favor. But in Jesus' case, the sacrifice was himself. Augustine said it speaks of that cross on which he was offered up in his entirety to God. He presents himself as the victim, going out to battle the kingdom of darkness, as as Spurgeon said, to embattle the legions of hell. He offers himself as a sacrifice. And God is pleased with his offering and regards his burnt uh, burnt sacrifice with favor. Verse 4, he grants him his heart's desire and fulfills all his counsel or his plans. He allows his sacrifice to accomplish that purpose for which it was intended. He grants him his request. He answers his prayer, even his prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them, and his prayer that God would not forsake him, but would raise him up. And his answer to those prayers causes us, verse 5, to shout for joy at his salvation. The church is there looking forward in faith to God answering the cry of his Christ and saving him on the day of his affliction. And though it is his salvation, the people rejoice in it because he is their king and their hopes are bound up with the fate of their king. Their lives are bound up in his. And so his salvation is their salvation and their joy. At which it says they set up their banners celebrating what he has done. They, they wave their flag rejoicing in what he's accomplished. 
They look forward to this in faith and say, yes, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Augustine adds not only those petitions that he offered on earth, but also those he continues to pray for us in heaven. The church of the Old Testament prays that God would answer the prayers of his son. It's very simple and yet profound. The church of the Old Testament is here praying that God would answer the prayers of his son, the prayers that he offered as he interceded for us on the cross, the prayers that he continues to pray for us at the right hand of God where the the sweet aroma of his sacrifice continues to fill the courts of heaven. Yes, may the Lord fulfill all his petitions. That's what they're praying. Then after a bit of a pause, change the next stanza, David then looks forward in confidence in verse six, assured that he will. It says, now I know that the Lord will save his anointed. He, he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. There he's, he's actually alluding back to Psalm 2. And, and with that allusion to Psalm 2 of God answering him from his holy heaven, his holy hill, he reminds us that part of God answering the, the prayer of his son includes even his request in Psalm 2 for God to make the nations his inheritance. God will save his anointed and grant his request, fulfilling all his plans from eternity past. And so the people in verse 7 place their trust in this king alone. They say some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God who saves his anointed. They collapse and fall, that is, those who who trust in any other means. But we stand upright because we have placed our hope not in the sinking sands of of any other hope, but on Christ, the solid rock. Psalms is here reminding us that only if you place your hope in this king and the God who saves him can you stand upright. Whether in the day of your trouble or whether in the day of judgment. This psalm reminds us not to place our hope in anything else. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. They are placing their entire hope in the Messiah for whom they pray. To then end in verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. It's interesting to note that word answer, which we saw also at the very beginning of the psalm. It sort of brackets the the whole psalm. It, It started off saying, may the Lord answer the king in his day of trouble. But now it it ends, may the Lord answer us. Again, because their life is bound up in the king's, and their prayer is in substance simply that God would answer him. And so because their prayer is, Lord, fulfill his petitions and save him, God's answer to the king is his answer to them. And so you see how how this psalm does have something to do with us, the people of the king. Something very important that we yet miss if if we just jump straight to making this psalm about God granting our heart's desires and, and fulfilling all our plans. No, Psalm 20 is teaching us to pray this of Christ. 
And as God answers him and grants his desire, our deepest needs and longings are also satisfied because we are his people. Psalm 20 is a prayer of the Old Testament waiting saints on behalf of the king to come, and yet it has everything to do with us because we are his. Lord's day one, we belong to him in body and soul, in life and in death. And so because we belong to him, this prayer has everything to do with us. Because it also teaches us about the prayer that that pleases God. So let's look at that in the, the time that we have left as we think about the question, how do we pray Psalm 20? Remember I said Calvin um, took this psalm to be chiefly about Christ's kingdom. And yet at the same time, Calvin said the design of the Spirit in Psalm 20 was to deliver to the church a common form of prayer. Notice the significance of Calvin having said both of these things, that the point is that a Christ-centered reading of this psalm and a devotionally robust, prayer-inducing, New Testament reading of it are not at odds. But David, inspired by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, having led the Old Testament church to pray this prayer, teaches us also how to pray. I'll show you five lessons that we learn about prayer from Psalm 20. First, it teaches us to pray that God will do what he has said he will do. When the people say in verse 2, may God send you help from his sanctuary in Zion, they're simply praying for God to do what he said he'll do in Psalm 2. Or when David says in verse 6, I know that God will save his anointed, his confidence is grounded in an awareness of what God has promised. This entire psalm is is but a meditation on Psalm 2 and on 2 Samuel 7 and God's promise in those places of a king to come. And so David here teaches us to slow down and meditate on God's word. And as that word dwells in us richly, as we meditate on it the same way that Psalm 1 commends to us, to then pray that God will do what he has said he will do to pray his promises back to him, to pray through his words. Even in verse three, to plead the merits of the king's sacrifice. And say, Lord, remember his offerings. Yes, we know that he will. But he is pleased to hear us pray this. He is pleased to hear us plead the merits of his son's sacrifice back to him. He is uh, pleased to hear us pray his, his promises in his word back to him. In fact, that's, that's one of the, the main things that the Psalms are given for us to do. They are, are, are given so that we might have a common form of prayer inspired by God and preserved in his word so that we might pray God's word back to him. So one professor of mine said, prayer is but an exercise in conforming our will to God's. And what better way than to plead and pray his promises back to him? Second, as we plead and pray God's promises back to him, this psalm also teaches us to trust in God and him alone. It's trusting God and not ourselves. 
I'm commenting on verse 7. The people say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Calvin says, whenever our minds come to be occupied with a fleshly confidence, that is, whenever we begin to trust in ourselves, they fall into forgetfulness of God. For it's impossible for him who promises himself victory by confiding in his own strength to have his eyes turned to God. The inspired writer therefore uses the word trust to show that when saints betake themselves to God, they must cast off everything that would hinder them from placing an exclusive trust in him. However much power and however many resources they may have, Calvin says it nevertheless withdraws them from all vain confidence so they don't expect any success except from the pure grace of God. This psalm subdues the vain hopes with which the flesh is wanted to be inflated and teaches us to renounce any and all hope of salvation from anywhere else but the pure grace of God. David in verse 7 teaches us to trust in God and not ourselves. And you can apply that both to our justification or our, our sanctification. The mission of the church any of these things. We do not trust in our own strength or ingenuity. We do not trust in our own works or morality. We do not trust in our own um, ability to pull up our bootstraps or to put to death our sin. As you think about our standing before God, we do not trust in our own piety or conservatism, whether theologically or politically. We trust in God alone and his Christ. And as we trust in him and him alone, the next thing David teaches us is that that as we pray to God, looking to him and him alone and praying his promises back to him, that we can also pray the very prayers of Christ back to him. That's what David does in verse five. He says, may the Lord fulfill all the king's petitions. Remember that king in verse six is identified as the Messiah. We can pray this too, praying the prayers of Christ back to God and saying, Lord, please do this. He has said, Father, forgive them, so Lord, forgive me. He has said, Lord, make the nations my inheritance, so Lord, give him the nations. Uh, He has said in that high priestly prayer of John 17, keep them from the evil one, sanctify them the truth, and let them be one, just as you and I are one, so Father, fulfill his petitions. We can take the prayers of Christ and pray them back to God. What better prayers to pray than to go to a place like like John 17 and meditate on that high priestly prayer and make that prayer ours and say, Lord, fulfill his petitions. And when we do this, we may be sure that he will answer us when we call. When the heartbeat of our prayers is a longing for the king's prayers to be answered, we may be assured that he will answer us when we call. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to have the heartbeat of our prayers conform to his. And to pray not so much um, for for, um, our individual desires as, as the coffee mug approach to this psalm might lead us, but to pray according to his desires for his kingdom, for his will, 
and to rejoice when it's done and when his kingdom is victorious. Speaking of verse 5 and uh, setting up our banners and, and rejoicing in what he's done, Christopher Ashe says our, our default is to rejoice and wave our cheerful flag when we do well and are victorious. When I do well on a test, or when I'm praised by others, when I get a good job or a happy marriage, But this psalm reshapes my desires that I begin to genuinely care more about the victories of King Jesus than my own successes or failures. This psalm reshapes our prayers and priorities according to the kings. Which is the fourth thing David's prayer teaches us, to rejoice not so much when our own individual desires are satisfied, but when the king is victorious. It teaches us to root our deepest desires in the victory of our king and to find our deepest joys when our king is the victor. This psalm reshapes and and reorients our affections and desires that we would long most deeply for the victory of Jesus and not our own personal glory, but his glory and the good of his church. That's what Psalm 20 teaches us very simply to long for and to pray for making us more deeply Christ-centered and self-forgetting even in our prayer. And we need that. Praying not, Lord, let this situation maximize my glory or my pleasure or my convenience, but Father, let Christ's purposes be accomplished even in this, even if it means uh, things not going as I would like. Even if it means my affliction and my suffering or me being humbled. It teaches us to place Christ's purposes above our own even as as we read and pray through the Psalms to do so not with a self-orientation but a kingdom orientation. Which is the final thing that Psalm 20 um, teaches us about our prayer. It teaches us to pray for the full coming of Christ's kingdom. Commentator Willem van Gemmeren says that we learn from this psalm to implore the Lord for the full establishment of the messianic kingdom when every knee will bow. Now, of course, this psalm is looking forward to the establishment of Christ's kingdom, and, and that has come. Yet though the king has come and been victorious, still we pray that God would manifest and and display and make open and public his victory. It would give him the nations. It would cause those who continue to trust in horses and in chariots, those who continue to resist the king and trust in their own morality, they would come under the reign of God's anointed in whose salvation is ours identifying with the king by faith and repentance and shouting for joy over his salvation, which by faith is also our salvation. And so this psalm, for any listening who have not done that, also is a a, a plea, is an invitation, is a command from the king of heaven to place your hope in him and him alone in the victory of this king and nowhere else. The psalm teaches us that our life is bound up in the kings. 
It teaches us to trust in him alone for our salvation. It, it teaches us to set up our banners and rejoice in what he has done and to implore the Lord to fulfill his petition by giving him the nations and making open and public the victory of our king unto the full coming of his kingdom. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we lift up our banners and rejoice in how you have saved the king. We lift our gaze in this psalm to the day of Christ's affliction when he mounted the hill of Calvary and offered himself as a sacrifice and praise you for answering his prayer and saving him. And pray you'd continue to fulfill all his petitions unto the full coming of his kingdom that you would make us a people whose deepest desires and joys are bound up in that kingdom, who desire not first and foremost for desires of our heart to be fulfilled, but Christ's, in whose name we pray.